Part Six, Chapter Twenty One of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Capital: A Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One, by Karl Marx, translated from the Third German Edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Friedrich Engels. Part Six. Wages. Chapter Twenty One. Peace Wages. Wages by the peace are nothing else than a converted form of wages by time, just as wages by time are a converted form of the value or price of labor power. In peace wages, it seems at first sight as if the use value bought from the laborer was not the function of his labor power, living labor, but labor already realized in the product, and as if the price of this labor was determined. Not as with time wages by the fraction equals daily value of labor power over the working day of a given number of hours, but by the capacity for the work of the producer. Footnote: The system of piecework illustrates an epoch in the history of the working man. It is halfway between the position of the mere day laborer, depending upon the will of the capitalist, and the cooperative artisan. Who in the not distant future promises to combine the artisan and capitalist in his own person? Peace workers are in fact their own masters, even whilst working upon the capital of the employer. John Watts, Trade Societies and Strikes, Machinery and Cooperative Societies, Manchester, 1865, pages 52 and 53. I quote this little work because it is a very sink of all long ago rotten apologetic commonplaces. This same Mr. Watts earlier traded an Owenism, and published in 1842 another pamphlet, Facts and Fictions of Political Economists, in which, among other things, he declares that property is robbery. That was long ago. End note. The confidence that trusts in this appearance ought to receive a first severe shock from the fact that both forms of wages exist side by side, simultaneously in the same branches of industry. For example. The compositors of London, as a general rule, work by the piece, time work being the exception, while those in the country work by the day, the exception being work by the piece. The shipwrights of the port of London work by the job or piece, whilst those of all other parts work by the day. Footnote: T. J. Dunning, Trades Unions and Strikes, London, 1860, page 22. End note. In the same saddlery shops of London, often for the same work. Peace wages are paid to the French, time wages to the English. In the regular factories in which throughout peace wages predominate, particular kinds of work are unsuitable to this form of wage, and are therefore paid by time. Footnote: How the existence, side by side and simultaneously, of these two forms of wage favors the master's cheating. A factory employs four hundred people, the half of which work by the piece and have a direct interest in working longer hours. The other two hundred are paid by the day, work equally long with the others, and get no more money for their overtime. The work of these two hundred people for half an hour a day is equal to one person's work for fifty hours, or five sixths of one person's labor in a week, and is a positive gain to the employer. Reports of inspectors of factories, thirty-first October, eighteen sixty, page nine. Overwork to a very considerable extent still prevails. And in most instances, with that security against detection and punishment which the law itself affords, 
I have in many former reports shown the injury to workpeople who are not allowed on piecework, but receive weekly wages. Leonard Homer, in Reports of Inspector of Factories, 30th April, 1859, pages 8 and 9. End note. But it is, moreover, self-evident that the difference of form in the payment of wages alters in no way their essential nature, although the one form may be more favorable to the development of capitalist production than the other. Let the ordinary working day contain twelve hours, of which six are paid, six unpaid. Let its value product be six shillings, that of one hour's labor, therefore, sixpence. Let us suppose that, as the result of experience, a laborer who works with the average amount of intensity and skill, who, therefore, gives in fact only the time socially necessary to the production of an article, supplies in twelve hours twenty-four pieces, either distinct products or measurable parts of a continuous whole. Then the value of these twenty-four pieces, after subtraction of the portion of constant capital contained in them, is six shillings, and the value of a single piece threepence. The laborer receives one and a half pence per piece, and thus earns in twelve hours three shillings. Just as with time wages, it does not matter whether we assume that the laborer works six hours for himself and six hours for the capitalist, or half of every hour for himself and the other half for the capitalist. So here it does not matter whether we say that each individual piece is half paid and half unpaid for, or that the price of twelve pieces is the equivalent only of the value of the labor power whilst in the other twelve pieces surplus value is incorporated. The form of piece wages is just as irrational as that of time wages. Whilst in our example two pieces of a commodity, after subtraction of the value of the means of production consumed in them, are worth sixpence as being the product of one hour, the laborer receives for them a price of threepence. Piece wages do not, in fact, distinctly express any relation of value, it is not, therefore, a question of measuring the value of the piece by the working time incorporated in it, but, on the contrary, of measuring the working time the laborer has expended by the number of pieces he has produced. In time wages, the labor is measured by its immediate duration. In piece wages, by the quantity of products in which the labor has embodied itself during a given time. The price of labor time itself is finally determined by the equation value of a day's labor equals daily value of labor power. Peace wage is, therefore, only a modified form of time wage. Footnote. Wages can be measured in two ways, either by the duration of the labor or by its product. Abréger l'élémentaire des principes de l'économie politique. Paris, 1796, page 32. The author of this anonymous work, G. Garnier. End note. Let us now consider a little more closely the characteristic peculiarities of peace wages. The quality of the labor is here controlled by the work itself, which must be of average perfection if the peace price is to be paid in full. Peace wages become, from this point of view, the most fruitful source of reductions of wages and capitalistic cheating. They furnish to the capitalist an exact measure for the intensity of labor. Only the working time, which is embodied in a quantum of commodities determined beforehand, and experimentally fixed, counts as socially necessary working time, and is paid as such. In the larger workshops of the London tailors, therefore, a certain piece of work, a waistcoat, for example, is called an hour, or half an hour, the hour is sixpence. By practice it is known how much is the average product of one hour. With new fashions, repairs, etc., a contest arises between master and laborer as to whether a particular piece of work is one hour, and so on, 
until here also experience decides. Similarly, in the London furniture workshops, etc. If the laborer does not possess the average capacity, if he cannot in consequence supply a certain minimum of work per day, he is dismissed. Footnote. So much weight of cotton is delivered to him, the spinner, and he has to return, by a certain time, in lieu of it, a given weight of twist or yarn, of a certain degree of fineness, and he is paid so much per pound for all that he returns. If his work is defective in quality, the penalty falls on him. If less in quantity than the minimum fixed for a given time, he is dismissed and an abler operative procured. First C. Urate. First C. Page 317. End note. Since the quality and intensity of the work are here controlled by the form of wage itself, superintendence of labor becomes in great part superfluous. Peace wages, therefore, lay the foundation of the modern domestic labor, described above, as well as of a hierarchically organized system of exploitation and oppression. The latter has two fundamental forms. On the one hand, peace wages facilitate the interposition of parasites between the capitalist and the wage laborer, the subletting of labor. The gain of these middlemen comes entirely from the difference between the labor price which the capitalist pays and the part of that price which they actually allow to reach the laborer. Footnote. It is when work passes through several hands, each of which is to take a share of profits, while only the last does the work, that the pay which reaches the workwoman is miserably disproportioned. Children's Employment Commission, Second Report, page 120, note 424. End note. In England, this system is characteristically called the sweating system. On the other hand, peace wage allows the capitalist to make a contract for so much per piece with the head laborer and manufacturers, with the chief of some group, in mines with the extractor of the coal, in the factory with the actual machine worker, at a price for which the head laborer himself undertakes the enlisting in payment of his assistant workpeople. The exploitation of the laborer by capital is here effected through the exploitation of the laborer by the laborer. Footnote. Even Watts, the apologetic, remarks, It would be a great improvement to the system of piecework if all the men employed on a job were partners in the contract, each according to his abilities, instead of one man being interested in overworking his fellows for his own benefit. First see page 53. On the vileness of this system, see, for example, Children's Employment Commission, Report the Third, page 66, note 22, page 11, note 124, page 11, note 13, 53, 59, and etc. End note. Given peace wage, it is naturally the personal interest of the laborer to strain his labor power as intensely as possible. This enables the capitalist to raise more easily the normal degree of intensity of labor. Footnote. This spontaneous result is often artificially helped along, i.e., in the engineering trade of London. A customary trick is the selecting of a man who possesses superior physical strength and quickness as the principal of several workmen, and paying him an additional rate, by the quarter or otherwise, with the understanding that he is to exert himself to the utmost to induce the others, who are only paid the ordinary wages, to keep up to him. Without any comment, this will go far to explain many of the complaints of stinting the action, superior skill, and working power, made by the employers against the men. In Trades Unions, Dunning, 1st C., pages 22 and 23. As the author is himself a laborer and secretary of a trades union, this might be taken for exaggeration. 
but the reader may compare the highly respectable Cyclopedia of Agriculture of J. C. Morton, article, The Laborer, where this method is recommended to the farmers as an approved one. End note. It is, moreover, now the personal interest of the laborer to lengthen the working day, since with it his daily or weekly wages rise. This gradually brings on a reaction like that already described in time wages, without reckoning that the prolongation of the working day, even if the peace wage remains constant, includes of necessity a fall in the price of the labor. Footnote. All those who are paid by piecework profit by the transgression of the legal limits of work. This observation as to the willingness to work overtime is especially applicable to the women employed as weavers and reelers. Report of Inspector of Factories, 30th April, 1858, page 9. This system, piecework, so advantageous to the employer, tends directly to encourage the young potter greatly to overwork himself during the four or five years during which he is employed in the piecework system, but at low wages. This is another great cause to which the bad constitutions of the potters are to be attributed. Children's Employment Commission, First Report, page 8. End note. In time wages, with few exceptions, the same wage holds for the same kind of work, whilst in peace wages, though the price of the working time is measured by a certain quantity of product, the day's or week's wage will vary with the individual differences of the laborers, of whom one supplies, in a given time, the minimum of product only, another the average, a third more than the average. With regard to actual receipts, there is, therefore, great variety according to the different skill, energy, strength, staying power, etc., of the individual laborers. Footnote. Where the work in any trade is paid for by the piece at so much per job, wages may very materially differ in amount. But in work by the day there is generally an uniform rate, recognized by both employer and employed as the standard of wages for the general run of workmen in the trade. Dunning, 1st C., page 17. End note. Of course this does not alter the general relations between capital and wage labor. First, the individual differences balance one another in the workshop as a whole, while thus supplies, in a given working time, the average product, and the total wages paid will be the average wages of that particular branch of industry. Second, the proportion between wages and surplus value remains unaltered, since the mass of surplus labor supplied by each particular laborer corresponds with the wage received by him but the wider scope that peace wage gives to individuality tends to develop, on the one hand, that individuality, and with it the sense of liberty, independence, and self-control of the laborers, and on the other, their competition with one another. Piecework has, therefore, a tendency, while raising individual wages above the average, to lower this average itself. But where a particular rate of peace wage has, for a long time, been fixed by tradition, and its lowering, therefore, presented especial difficulties, the masters, in such exceptional cases, sometimes had recourse to its compulsory transformation into time-wage. Hence, for example, in 1860, a great strike among the ribbon-weavers of Coventry. Peace-wage is finally one of the chief supports of the hour system described in the preceding chapter. Footnote. The work of the journeyman artisans will be ruled by the day or by the peace. These master artisans know about how much work a journeyman artisan can do per day in each craft, and often pay them in proportion to the work which they do. 
The journeymen, therefore, work as much as they can in their own interest without any further inspection. Cantillon, Essai sur la nature du commerce en général, Amstead, 1756, pages 185 and 202. The first edition appeared in 1755. Cantillon, from whom Quesnay, Sir James Stewart, and A. Smith have largely drawn, already here represents peace wage as simply a modified form of time wage. The French edition of Cantillon professes in its title to be a translation from the English, but the English edition, the analysis of trade, commerce, etc., by Philippe Cantillon, late of the City of London, merchant, is not only of later date, 1759, but proves by its contents that it is a later and revised edition, e.g., in the French edition, Hume is not yet mentioned, whilst in the English, on the other hand, Petty hardly figures any longer. The English edition is theoretically less important, but it contains numerous details referring specifically to English commerce, bullion trade, etc., that are wanting in the French text. The words on the title page of the English edition, according to which the work is taken chiefly from the manuscript of a very ingenious gentleman, deceased and adapted, etc., seem, therefore, pure fiction, very customary at that time. End note. Note. How often have we seen, in some workshops, many more workers recruited than the work actually called for? On many occasions, workers are recruited in anticipation of future work, which may never materialize. Because they are paid by peace wages, it is said that no risk is incurred, since any loss of time will be charged against the unemployed. H. Gregor, Les Typographes devant le Tribunal Correctionnaire de Bruxelles, Brussels, 1865, page 9. End note. From what has been shown so far, it follows that peace wage is the form of wages most in harmony with the capitalist mode of production. Although by no means new, it figures side by side with time wages officially in the French and English labor statutes of the fourteenth century, it only conquers a larger field for action during the period of manufacture, properly so called. In the stormy youth of modern industry, especially from 1797 to 1815, it served as a lever for the lengthening of the working day, and the lowering of wages. Very important materials for the fluctuation of wages during that period are to be found in the blue books. Report and evidence from the Select Committee on Petitions Respecting the Corn Laws, Parliamentary Session of 1813-14, to 14, and Report from the Lord's Committee on the State of Growth, Commerce, and Consumption of Grain, and All Laws Relating Thereto, Session of 1814-15. to 15. Here we find documentary evidence of the constant lowering of the price of labor from the beginning of the Anti-Jacobin War. In the weaving industry, for example, peace wages had fallen so low that in spite of the very great lengthening of the working day, the daily wages were then lower than before. The real earnings of the cotton weaver are now far less than they were. His superiority over the common laborer, which at first was very great, has now almost entirely ceased. Indeed, the difference in the wages of skillful and common labor is far less now than at any former period. Remarks on the Commercial Policy of Great Britain, London, 1815. End note. How little the increased intensity and extension of labor through peace wages benefited the agricultural proletariat, the following passage borrowed from a work on the side of the landlords and farmers shows. By far the greater part of agricultural operations is done by people who are hired for the day or on piecework.
their weekly wages are about twelve shillings, and although it may be assumed that a man earns on piecework under the greater stimulus to labor one shilling or perhaps two shillings more than on weekly wages, yet it is found, on calculating his total income, that his loss of employment during the year outweighs this gain. Further, it will generally be found that the wages of these men bear a certain proportion to the price of the necessary means of subsistence, so that a man with two children is able to bring up his family without recourse to parish relief. Footnote. A Defense of the Landowners and Farmers of Great Britain, 1814, pages 4 and 5. End note. Malthus at that time remarked with reference to the facts published by Parliament. I confess that I see with misgiving the great extension of the practice of peace-wage. Really hard work during twelve or fourteen hours of the day, or for any longer time, is too much for any human being. Footnote. Malthus, Inquiry into the Nature and Progress of Rent, London, 1815. In the workshops under the Factory Acts, peace-wages became the general rule, because capital can there only increase the efficacy of the working-day by intensifying labor. Footnote. Those who are paid by piecework constitute probably four-fifths of the workers in the factories. Report of the Inspector of Factories, 30th April, 1858. End note. With the changing productiveness of labor, the same quantum of product represents a varying working time. Therefore, piece wage also varies, for it is the money expression of a determined working time. In our example above, twenty-four pieces were produced in twelve hours, whilst the value of the product of the twelve hours was six shillings, the daily value of labor-power three shillings, the price of the labor-hour three pence, and the wage for one piece one-half pence. In one piece half an hour's labor was absorbed. If the same working day now supplies, in consequence of the doubled productiveness of labor, forty-eight pieces instead of twenty-four, and all other circumstances remain unchanged, then the piece wage falls from one and a half pence to three quarters pence, as every piece now only represents one quarter instead of one half of a working hour. Twenty four by one and a half pence equals three shillings, and in like manner forty eight by three quarter pence equals three shillings. In other words, piece wage is lowered in the same proportion as the number of pieces produced in the same time rises and therefore as the working time spent on the same piece falls. This change in piece wage, so far purely nominal, leads to constant battles between capitalist and labor. Either because the capitalist uses it as a pretext for actually lowering the price of labor, or because increased productive power of labor is accompanied by an increased intensity of the same, or because the laborer takes seriously the appearance of piece wages, viz., that his product is paid for, and not his labor-power, and therefore revolts against a lowering of wages, unaccompanied by a lowering in the selling price of the commodity. Footnote. The productive power of his spinning-machine is accurately measured, and the rate of pay for work done with it decreases, with, though not as, the increase of its productive power. Ure, first C, page 317. This last apologetic phrase, Ure himself again cancels. The lengthening of the mule causes some increase of labor, he admits. The labor does therefore not diminish in the same ratio as its productivity increases. Further, by this increase the productive power of the machine will be augmented one-fifth. When this event happens the spinner will not be paid at the same rate for work done as he was before, 
but as that rate will not be diminished in the ratio of one-fifth, the improvement will augment his money earnings for any given number of hours' work. But the foregoing statement requires a certain modification. The spinner has to pay something additional for juvenile aid out of his additional sixpence, accompanied by displacing a portion of adults. First see, page 321, which has in no way a tendency to raise wages. End note. The operatives carefully watch the price of the raw material and the price of manufactured goods, and are thus enabled to form an accurate estimate of their master's profit. Footnote. H. Fawcett, The Economic Position of the British Laborer. Cambridge and London, 1865, page 178. End note. The capitalist rightly knocks on the head such pretensions as gross errors as to the nature of wage labor. He cries out against this usurping attempt to lay taxes on the advance of industry, and declares roundly that the productiveness of labor does not concern the laborer at all. Footnote. In the London Standard of October 26, 1861, there is a report of proceedings of the firm of John Bright and Company, before the Rochdale Magistrates, to prosecute for intimidation the agents of the carpet-weavers' trades union. Bright's partners had introduced new machinery which would turn out 240 yards of carpet in the time with the labor previously required to produce 160 yards. The workmen had no claim whatever to share in the profits made by the investment of their employer's capital in mechanical improvements. Accordingly, Messrs. Bright proposed to lower the rate of pay from one and a half pence per yard to one pence, leaving the earnings of the men exactly the same as before for the same labor. But there was a nominal reduction, of which the operatives, it is asserted, had not fair warning beforehand. End note. Footnote. Trades unions, in their desire to maintain wages, endeavor to share in the benefits of improved machinery. Quel horreur! The demanding higher wages because labor is abbreviated, is, in other words, the endeavor to establish a duty on mechanical improvements. On Combination of Trades, New Edition, London, 1834, page 42. End note. End chapter 21.